On the 31st of January 2020, the United Kingdom formally left the European Union. It took some four years following the 2016 referendum to settle the manner of the UK's departure, with a deal that would define the future relationship of both parties finally coming into force at 11pm on the 31st of December 2020. Although this meant that no deal was averted, most observers on both sides of the political debate would recognise that it was a hard Brexit, with the UK leaving both the single market and the customs union. It's also recognised that by the end of 2020, Brexit still divided the United Kingdom as much as it had done back in 2016. So I don't intend to cover every detail of the Brexit debate in 2020, but I will make some observations on the nature of Brexit, just to provide a bit of context for any forecasts of what Brexit might mean for 2021 and beyond. The first observation is that throughout, the Brexit debate tended to be high on emotions and very short on detail. An example of this was the debate on sovereignty. For those who voted for Brexit, the main appeal appeared to be around the notion of capturing a sovereignty which had existed in the past, but had been lost to a foreign power. Now, it's important to understand, though, that any loss of sovereignty had in fact been loaned freely by successive sovereign UK parliaments to the European Union. These UK parliaments had judged that a pooling of some aspects of sovereignty would be in the UK's interests just as even after Brexit, the UK will still be in a pooled sovereignty arrangement as part of the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation, or NATO, for example. Additionally, on a constitutional level, no previous parliaments can bind successive parliaments, and loan sovereignty can be taken back at any point, as Brexit has illustrated. This notion of sovereignty having been lost and needing to be clawed back then seems to be more a reflection of collective feelings and emotions rather than of any practicality. These emotional forces which unleashed Brexit will remain in play in 2021 and beyond and will undoubtedly have an influence on the path Brexit takes, but the direction is unpredictable. The second observation is that though there was a consensus amongst those who voted for Brexit that they wanted to move away from the EU, there was no consensus as to what the UK should move towards. Many talked of moving towards some sort of future global Britain. But other than coining this term, which is a description of the type of outward relationship the UK may want to have with the world, there was little detail beyond this. We were no clearer in 2020 about what the UK wants to use its newfound sovereignty for, nor specifically what sort of society it wants to create, which it felt that it couldn't create within the EU, the single market and the customs uni union. Some international observers maintain that the UK will be embarking on a post-Brexit journey in 2021 and beyond without even the vaguest of route maps. Others will of course argue that there is no need for such a map and that the sovereign people and sovereign parliaments will have the freedom to decide upon and alter the course as they choose. That is correct, but the lack of detail as to where the UK is heading as a society post-Brexit is problematic for observers like me. Additionally, when detail appears and it is clear what the path might look like, it could be highly contentious and may splinter the coalition forces which supported Brexit adding a further element of unpredictability. It's often heard from pro and anti-Brexit supporters alike that the post-Brexit plan is the creation of a Singapore on Thames. 
Depending upon perspective, this could equate to a recipe for a much more entrepreneurial society with few safety nets, or alternatively, for a much more unequal society with much lower labour and environmental standards. This is all conjecture though, and ironically, nearly five years after the referendum debate, there's no detail on the overall direction the UK is heading in. Given this uncertainty, what can be said about 2021 and beyond in a post-Brexit UK? Or more pointedly, what can be said for the employment sphere? There are some knowns, and these knowns are likely to have consequences for all employers over the next few years and beyond. One known is that the UK will no longer enjoy frictionless trade with the EU. Another is that the trade agreement which is in place largely covers goods, and that if there is to be any agreement on services, this will have to be negotiated going forward. These two knowns are likely to have impacts in terms of business restructuring. The next known is that the UK will no longer need to abide by EU labour standards. Although it must be recognised that at the end of the Brexit transition period on the 31st of December 2020, existing EU law was converted into domestic law. It also needs to be recognised that if the UK seeks to diverge too far from the prevailing EU standards, it is likely to gain what the EU would consider an unfair advantage in terms of the single market. And the EU has reserved the right to take retaliatory action, which could include applying tariffs. This could then act as a break on UK aspirations in terms of changes to labour standards. The final knowns that I would highlight are the following. Freedom of movement has ceased. About 4.9 million EU citizens in the UK have applied for settled status. The UK has introduced a new points-based immigration system which treats EU and non-EU citizens equally. EU citizens have been added to the UK Voluntary Repatriation Scheme, which offers EU citizens financial incentives to leave the UK. And a large number of EU nationals have decided to leave the UK post-Brexit, a trend which has been accelerated by the pandemic, of course. Now, these knowns will undoubtedly have considerable impact on all employers in relation to access to talent and skills and their ability to retain talent and skills. Now let's look a bit more in detail at the areas that I have mentioned will be impacted. So business restructuring, employment law, and talent and skills. Let's start with business restructuring. It's clear that trade with the EU will not be frictionless and that services are largely excluded from the current trade agreement. This is likely to cause business to relocate some activities to the EU in order to avoid disruption and minimize extra costs of doing trade with the EU from the UK. Although it's early days, it is speculated that whole logistics and supply chains might have to be re-engineered to recognise the reality of life outside of the EU. This is going to result in the need for many businesses to restructure their operations, which could include setting up new company structures in the EU and making redundancies, unfortunately, in the UK. Companies will need to be very careful about how they do this. Now let's turn to employment law. The Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, Kwasi Kwarteng, confirmed recently that the government would examine what it wants to keep in terms of EU-derived employment law. However, last week he confirmed that this review has now been dropped. It's highly likely that the government will want to change some of the employment legislation if they have the bandwidth to do so in 2021. The government will be conscious of the EU reaction to any reduction in labour protection and standards though. 
They will also be concerned about sensitivities in the red wall seats, where newfound Conservative voters might be adversely impacted by any such legal changes. If future legal changes result in a reduction in the current statutory minimum employment conditions, employers will need to also consider the interaction between their current contractual clauses and the changes in law. Statutory amendments may not automatically result in change for individual employers if current contractual clauses do not refer to statute or if they offer contractual rights which go over and above the statutory protections. In addition, employers could, should carefully consider the impact of any changes they are permitted to make in terms of employee relations and their talent attraction and retention needs. And finally, moving on to talent and skills. So perhaps the most pressing issue for employers will be around talent and skills attraction and retention needs. These may not be so pressing in the, in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic, as consumer demand will likely remain depressed. And with a 5% unemployment rate, there will be a supply of labour. The issue, though, will be key skills. Social care, for example, has relied on very heavily on EU nationals, as has construction, crop picking, ICT, hospitality and the NHS as a whole. Employers who look abroad for solutions will need to be able to navigate their way around the work visa categories, including the new skilled worker visa, the points-based system, and new and existing sponsorship licence applications. Even for those EU nationals in the UK labour market, there will be added complexities for employers. Employers will need to ensure that EU nationals have the right to work, and they will need to distinguish between newly arrived EU nationals who do not have any such right, and those who are established under the EU Settled Status Scheme. Of course, employers can't decide to stop hiring EU nationals on a blanket ban basis to avoid any problems, as that would be discriminatory. Another thing for employers to consider is how their EU national workers are feeling about the post-Brexit Britain experience. There is already evidence of an exodus of EU nationals from the UK. The rapid inclusion of EU nationals on the government's voluntary repatriation list appears a far cry from the EU nationals are part of our community and we want you to stay messaging that was heard towards the end of last year. This inclusion on a list of people the UK would like to assist to leave the country will no doubt have a very unnerving effect on EU nationals, many of whom will already feel unwelcome in the UK. Employers should be proactive, understand how their EU nationals are feeling about the situation and support their EU nationals with securing settled status where appropriate. Life is likely to be more complicated for employers after Brexit and certainly employers will not be able to carry on as before. Adjustments will need to be made. Employers should not just tackle issues as they arise on a piecemeal basis. Instead, they should be thinking strategically about this in the round now and preparing for the changes. The following sorts of questions need to be considered. What type of business are we? How will Brexit impact us in terms of restructuring our operations? What are the likely consequences in terms of our employee relations? What do we need to change within our policies, procedures and contracts of employment? What are our talent and skill requirements and how will these be met? And do we have the knowledge and expertise to handle all of this? With respect to the last point, Clark's Legal have a wealth of expertise spanning across employment law, business restructuring, immigration and strategic HR planning. So should you need assistance in relation to any of these areas, please don't hesitate to contact us via the email address contact 
at clarkslegal.com or alternatively via our Clarks Legal LLP LinkedIn page. I'd like to thank you all for listening to my podcast today, the final in this series, and I hope you found it insightful. I wish you a good week ahead and I look forward to speaking to you again soon.